We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Experience counts for a lot in a profession like architecture, but right now, some of the best work in architecture is being done by graduates and emerging architects. Graduates are doing more work in large practices than ever before. Young architects are creating project typologies that have never been seen, and emerging practices are winning awards locally and globally. Not only are they completing great built work, but there's also a renewed interest in community engagement, where young architects are helping clubs and organisations to get funding so they can build infrastructure that they need to survive. It's an exciting time to be a young architect, because more and more people are learning how to create their own place in a profession that has always been intrinsically connected to innovation. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Erin Crowden, Monique Woodward, and Warren Hasnoot about how they're doing so much incredible work when just the normal amount of work can result in very little time at home with family and friends. Erin Crowden has been involved in almost every extracurricular program in South Australia. She was a SONA representative at uni and a curator of the new Architects and Graduates group, which she helped transition into Imagine in the Institute's South Australian chapter. In 2020, Erin became the National President of Imagine and was also South Australia's Emerging Architect Prize winner, while she was also an architect at Williams Burton Leopardi. Erin and I talked about balancing work and life and what keeps her going when she has so much work to complete for so many initiatives. All right, Erin, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? Yeah, good. So so you've been involved in lots of architectural endeavours throughout your career and while you were studying, and you started off as an elected member of SONAR. What did you find when you when you started being involved with NAG? What do you think graduates and and young professionals are really hungry for? Well, at, at that point in time, and I think it has changed slightly over the last five years, or really, maybe it's just because the options are broader now but when I was seeking it I was seeking it predominantly for networking and I mean Adelaide is a small climate regardless but it provided such good opportunities to get out there and meet other people in similar or slightly more advanced positions than what I was in it provided a good sense of community in that you could bounce ideas and potentially even problems off of other people who were outside of your workplace but who were still up like in the field of architecture, so they still understood exactly what it was that you were bouncing off of them or the problems that you might have been facing at that point in time. They also arranged things like site visits to larger scale sites around Adelaide, which for me was great because I've been working in predominantly residential field for pretty much my entire career. So that was a really good opportunity to, to suddenly go and see behind the scenes in a convention centre that had just been completed. So they were really valuable opportunities and events that were provided at that point in time. I think it's also shifted now to being a bit more about education as well and certainly about providing a voice and, and advocacy for the emerging demographic. And do you think um, that's because, you know, when when you're at uni you're sort of 
you're going through a curriculum which is really formalised and, and it's quite clear that you're on this project, uh, trajectory from first year through to fifth year or, or, or more now that we've got uh, you know, four-year undergrads and two-year postgrads. Um, and then when you graduate, you have to have to make your own way and you can feel a little bit isolated. Yeah, I, I definitely think that was part of it. And I was I was fortunate in that I got work with a firm I wanted to work with very shortly after graduating. So I truly wanted to focus on that, but I did get to that point where I did start to feel isolated and I needed, I guess, wider engagement and I needed to know that there was more outside the walls of my firm, so to speak, to connect to the architectural community again and make sure that all of those great connections that I'd made while at uni, that I didn't just let them squander and sort of dissipate I needed to reconnect that and I wanted to build more and build new ones as well mm-hmm. and did you start to see some other people's work up close where you could say oh okay that's the way you're doing it yeah look that was a really good opportunity to do that and I think also as spin-offs from that you could work through anything that you needed or wanted to work through with other people who are at the events and it also then sort of provided access to at that point in time, registered architects or more senior architects who had taken a site tour or who had attended an event as a guest for one of the places that we'd visited on a bar tour or whatever. And it meant then that you were you were building a mentoring network of people who were senior to you in experience, as well as building one of your peers. And then also, as obviously, as you get further away from graduation, those who you can then help to mentor all through, and this at this point in time, all through social events, which was, it was brilliant. It was exactly what I was looking for and exactly what I think I needed at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And then so after a little while, NAG, I guess, transitioned into, into Imagine and became part, of the, became part of the institute. What was the biggest shift uh, in, in what you ended up providing um, when, when it became part of the institute? Oh, that's a good question. Um, look, I think, so NAG had sort of somewhat fallen under the umbrella of the Institute, but was still fiercely independent. And I think the, I think the thing that, that really um, sort of established it as Imagine as opposed to NAG was the fact that suddenly there was the more easily perceived backing of the Institute and access to all of the resources and support and everything that, that the Institute provides. And I think that one of the key stumbling blocks in that transition, and I think it is still a bit of a stumbling block for Imagine today, is that a lot of people who are graduate members of the Institute don't realise that they are therefore Imagine members. It's not something that you have to apply to or for separately. It's it's part of that. And so I think that once people were able to realise that, that meant then that depending on levels of membership or whatever, but there's access to such a vast resource of materials and people and breadth of knowledge and just networking at a whole nother level that's open to people all of a sudden. So I think that was the biggest that was the biggest thing to help people understand that as part of that transition. And have you ever had some uh, like a moment where or have you ever spoken to someone who's been an institute member member for a long time? And it seems like they're getting something very different from being a member from what what you're able to get with being so integral to um, 
you know, the imagined committee and the other committees that you end up being involved with with the institute. Once you actually sort of start to really engage with with organising these events and CBD and all of those things. Yeah, look, I think a lot of it is becoming aware that there are so many different levels that you can get engaged through, and I think that was something that kept opening up to me, and it was still opening up to me is how involved or how many doors can be opened I guess when you start to get involved and I I do remember that early on when I took over as co-chair of NAG the ED in the SA chapter said very wisely to myself and the other co-chair at that point in time that it's kind of the old saying that if you open one door and you go through like you make the effort to go through that door then another two will open and it's not necessarily as far as career progression or anything but as far as personal growth and the things that you can find that are useful to you or may be useful to you. And that, I mean, that's obviously personal for everyone, depending on their career trajectory and their own interests. But I certainly get a lot of, a lot more and a lot more varied things out of my membership than I know some of the other people in my, my studio do, or than some of the older members in the profession that, I might talk to, and I think that is also because I'm willing to go and seek it out, and I'm I'm not just taking it at face value. Yeah, and yeah, I thought that was really nice when you were saying, you know, if you go through one door, you know, maybe, maybe two doors seem to open. I haven't heard of someone becoming a uh, an Imagine committee member or co chair, and then all of a sudden they get a, a promotion. <laughs> but <laughs> no. what have you? What have? <laughs> but what, what what have you have you um, noticed? that, uh, you know, you said you were sort of growing on a personal level. What did you see, um, so, you know, that as you were growing through being involved in in Imagine that uh, it was contributing to something else that maybe you weren't expecting at uh, at work? Yeah, look, um, I, I would love to say that becoming an Imagine committee member or co-chair or national president will get you a promotion. <laughs> can't say that does happen, but um, no, look, no. it's... It is, for me, it was that I started to gain a bit more confidence in myself and it sounds a bit corny and cheesy but we're kind of so used to presenting our ideas through all of the uni crit process and then when we get into studios if, if we've got robust design discussions. But it this was presenting myself professionally but on a different level and at a different scale and suddenly I was talking to distinguished architects or people who were many, many years my senior, both in experience and time in the profession, everything. And I was starting to be able to present myself in a way that I had something of value to offer and that I had a unique viewpoint that was worth being listened to and that was worth standing up to voice that opinion. And I think that was something that I wasn't necessarily expecting through the role and and I didn't actively seek to begin with, but it's something that I'm definitely seeking more and more now. Again, as more doors open for me. It's it's almost one of those things that probably any any graduate and young architect can can um, develop by being by stretching themselves a little bit further. That uh, is hard to address with a, a CPD event. <laughs> you know, just that um the age old thing of just trying to get more confidence and um yeah putting yourself out there and just sort of being involved and. Taking initiative can can help in those areas where uh, it's hard to get a class in it. <laughs> exactly, you've got to open yourself. And again, it sounds so cliched, and everyone says it, but 
you've got to open yourself up to opportunities to be able to grow. And if you want to grow, you need to put yourself out there. Like, and yes, it <laughs> it can be scary depending on what it is that you're particularly doing. But at the end of the day, if you're not prepared to take risks, you're not going to grow. Yeah. And I mean, so, you, so you've so you been co-chair of the South Australian chapter of Imagine and then you became the national um, chair of, of Imagine and you've been um, working on some really important initiatives at that national level. What's What have you been chipping away on um, this year that uh, that, you're, that, you're, that you've achieved this year? Uh, well, I'd, first I've got to say that I took over the reins from Tom at the start of the year and Imagine had sort of been skyrocketing in terms of what we'd been tackling and, and the things we've been able to achieve. And this podcast is definitely one of those that, um, you know, you and Tom got off the ground brilliantly. <laughs> Thank so, you. <laughs> uh, something I'm proud of this year is um, well, we have been able to start implementing more recognition for people within the Imagine Demographic at awards levels. This is something that will be starting in SA next year uh, and then you know may extend out from that and it it's sort of building on the idea of the value that you know young professionals emerging architects graduates can bring to projects and the way that we can benefit the built environment as a specific demographic and, and sort of bringing that to the forefront so there hopefully fingers crossed will be an award at the SA chapter awards next year along those lines final wording to be determined uh other than that look this year's year's been a bit hard with COVID obviously as everyone's well aware so a lot of the other initiatives that that we would normally try and get moving a bit more have been a little bit harder to get going I guess we've launched our website which I can't I can't claim credit for um because a lot of that work was done previously but it's really good to have got that up and and going and to have a bit of a refresh with that that's huge because I think Prior to this year, I mean, there wasn't so much of an online presence for um, the Institute and, and Imagine as well, and it's, it should be a really great platform to help people find out how to get involved and to see what Imagine's delivering for, for the members who are in this uh, quite a large demographic of, of architects out there who are, have graduated and who are recently registered and are making waves in the, in the uh, profession. Um, and you also recently won the Emerging Architect Prize in in um, South Australia. Um, what uh, yeah? What do you think you're, is going to come from that now? I mean, what, what are you hoping that you can that you can share with with other graduates and and young professionals after after getting that gong? Well, that's a bit of a hard one. I again, I don't necessarily see that it's going to win me a promotion or do anything like that because that's not what it's about. It's <laughs> What I, what I hope it can show, and again, this is, I'm sounding very cliched with this, but I do have to bring in the fact that I have a very young family and I have deliberately chosen to not take much time off of work to start a family uh, and that I've come back and I've, I've tried to remain engaged and involved in the architectural community and I think that this generation is a generation that's changing that sort of idiom with it but I want to make people aware that one there's no perfect time to start a family and two that you can do it and you can work in the architectural profession despite all of the hang-ups of you know working hours and, and everything else and that it is possible to do that so I think that's something that I am trying to actively 
show and encourage especially female members but not not only female members um, and grads that it is possible and you don't have to leave the profession and that <laughs> you should still become registered even if you're planning on having a family or anything else like that and that there's no barriers for that anymore. So I think that's one of the key things that I'm trying to show and that's where I guess winning the prize, which was an incredible honour, that that gives a bit more of a platform to do that and to share that message, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... And I mean, you just you just mentioned that you know you're juggling so much stuff, um, you know, personal life with family as well as you know the job that you have and imagine and all of these things. What what is it about um, engaging with the emerging architect and and young architect culture that that keeps you coming back and keeps you putting in those hours? What uh, what's what's happening out there that makes you so engaged with it? Look. Um- there's a few a few different parts to that question. <laughs> I guess yeah. firstly, from a purely selfish point of view, I love the interaction that I get from it. I, I love the networks that I can personally build and the people that I can meet that inspire me both architecturally in a business mindset and in a personal mindset. Uh, the connections I've made through this network are incredible and I like to keep being challenged in that way as well. So that's that's one part. The second part, I guess, um, I keep coming back because I like to, well, I think of it in the way of what would have helped me when I was in that position and what can I do to go past that point, if that makes sense. So, you know, it's, it's more than just, oh, when I was in that point, however many years ago, it would have been good if X, Y, Z was available it's, well, if X, Y, Z was available, then what else would I have needed or what else would have been helpful or how could that have helped me in another way or, you know, what would have been that next step? Assuming that the current availability of everything is now baseline, that's probably a really clumsy way of saying it, but, um, (laughs) you know, what's next? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I think that's really that's that is extremely exciting. Now that's it's awesome to hear yeah, everything that you've been through over the last few years, Erin, and you've just achieved so much. So it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you have a wonderful, uh, wonderful rest of the year. Thanks, Dan. You too. Working as a young architect already comes with a huge workload, and there are some who seem to keep popping up when something new comes along. Monique Woodward is one of these architects. Along with having her own practice, Mon is an architectural activist, working to strengthen the whole profession and engaging in a dialogue with a lot of high-profile stakeholders in government. Mon shares her experience with regards to setting a high bar for her practice and making projects happen that don't even exist yet. All right, Mon, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? I'm good, Dan. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, as always. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. It's great to have you. So you're one of Australia's most prolific emerging architects. You've won basically every emerging architect prize in Australia. You've won the Emerging Architect Prize in Victoria and the National Prize. You won the Dulux Study Tour. Tell us a little bit about WoWoWa and what it's like uh, running such a unique emerging practice. 
Well, Wawawa is amazing, <laughs> um, mostly just because it has the most incredible group of people that I feel so privileged to work with and be around. Even during this year, which has been mostly on Zoom, uh, which is just so crazy now that we've come out of lockdown. But um, yeah, I mean, when Scott and I first started the practice, we had the mantra, create the studio you wish you'd worked at, right? So this create this amazing place that you just want to be part of and then and 10 years on, it feels like we really did create just a really fun space to be in. And so that's really what I'm most proud of. And we do both resi work, a lot of yummy renovations and new builds. And over 2020, we've really been propped up by a lot of the civic work and the school projects we've been doing, which is amazing to have that kind of duality of project. But yeah, we have a just before COVID hit, we moved into a brand spanking new studio, which was obviously double the cost, <laughs> but it was just amazing. We moved from a shop front in Rathdown Street to a cute little building designed by Claire Cousins in Collingwood. And going back there now, you know, we just had our Christmas party. We just had champagne oysters in the studio. It was just the, the best thing. So I'm really excited about next year. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, you mentioned that you work on some alterations and additions and some much larger work in the civic area. How have you managed to make the space a fun place to work at when you've got all of those, the sort of nitty gritty things that a young emerging practice has to learn on the fly? How have you managed to actually make that a reality? I guess we just embrace the mess of things. You know, we embrace that we don't know. A lot of things we collab with really incredible people. We are just curious and a level of naivety (laughs) is always good and to embrace that rather than sort of pretending what you don't know because then you're open to people, you know, helping you and, you know, if you're passionate and you practice like your hair's on fire, which is something that we told the head of the VSBA and he was like, right, we need some more of that, (laughs) you know, welcome to the fold. So um, I think that our enthusiasm really is what drives us and is what is attractive to people. And, you know, I guess we just, you know, I just couldn't imagine war being any other way. Um, you know, it's not like we set out to be this hotshot thing. I guess we just became curious in exploring other ways of practising and um, we're just interested in doing things in a way that hadn't been done before or exploring new avenues to actually get work was actually probably the genesis for a lot of the crazy harebrained ideas that we do because no one was handing us, same as any other emerging practice, no one was handing us a project on a silver platter. It was about how do you actually get in there and get experience when no one will give you experience if you haven't got it before. So I think that that conundrum really drove us to be experimental and I think that just serves us because we are curious in general, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I can really see from the outset that you're extremely true to yourselves and, yeah, you make the projects happen that that you want to have come through the door. And with that, the civic work that you're starting to venture into, you know, a lot of young firms find it pretty tricky to, to tick all the boxes that councils or government might want when they're looking for a practice. You recently became a certified B Corporation. I mean, what does that actually entail and, and why did you choose to get this certification? Yeah, so uh, we are so passionate about becoming a B Corporation. So we're only one of five Australian architecture practices that have done that. I think it was the work that we did on Nightingale really inspired us to balance you know, purpose and profit 
And so we decided a long time ago, actually, but we only got certified last year, was to join this global network of companies, these proper businesses, you know, like Patagonia and Keep Cup, and they're not really sort of architecture-centric. So we're sort of now legally required to consider the impact. So it's not just a promise, it's a legal framework to consider the impact we have on our team, our clients, suppliers, our community and the environment. So B Corps around the world meet the highest verified standards for social and environmental performance, transparency and accountability. That's their kind of catch cry and uh, we scored a 95, which is the highest, which I don't know how we did that, but we're super proud of it. I'm sure we'll be knocked off the letter soon. But, you know, I mean, we're really passionate about initiatives like in carbon neutral, which then became popularized across a lot of Melbourne practices, which we were so excited by. You know, we have donations, a certain percentage of our profit goes to our charities. Each year, you know, we change banks, we have a sustainable building materials register that we go to. And it really kind of cemented a lot of the office culture, you know, initiatives that we had going on already. I think that's why we we're able to get the highest score because really we were passionate about, you know, paying super on maternity leave. You know, that's just something that I think all companies should do across Australia, pay parity, you know, diversity, flexibility, and, you know, all of these other really good things. I sort of became this evangelist for the idea that a lot of the problems within architecture, within our own practices would be solved by not reinventing the wheel, but actually by engaging with people. And so I guess we always try to be leaders in, in our small way. And so, yeah, that's why we, you know, spent a year on the certification. It's a tick box thing, but... We have basically someone working part-time on it. Well, it's, it must have been a really great process to go through because the process that architects seem to go through is that we propose really beneficial things for our clients and for the community. And then just within the actual structure of our companies, some architecture firms, I guess, seem a little bit stuffy and that things like super on parental leave hasn't been incorporated yet. So it must have felt like you're actually doing a lot of the things which should become the norm for any good company out there, right? No, exactly. And, and you know, I think that it just led us to be more true to ourselves, but really it gave us a lot of collateral to be able to use for getting civic work, which is the, which was our key objective. So, you know, we can just now say that we're B Corp certified and send people to a link so they understand what that means if they aren't already aware. But most people are actually aware of what it is to be B Corp. And I think that that has been a, a gateway to allow us into these sort of larger conversations. And, and I mean, you recently had your first baby. How has, <laughs> how has that all sort of changed your mentality around work-life balance? I will flag that this is the second recording of this podcast because <laughs> I was so tired. <laughs> I was so tired in the first one that I listened to it and sounded like a lunatic. So I think that that's, you know, that's kind of where my head's at. So I had a, a little baby girl, Cleo, Rossi, and she's six months old and I really did imagine my maternity leave to be slightly different because I didn't imagine the pande- global pandemic right in the middle of it. But I think one of the amazing things, obviously, is to now have this new perspective, but I think it's sort of a slightly odd thing because I'm not sure what's COVID and what's maternity leave, but the wholesale take-up of Zoom and not having to actually physically go to meetings really meant that during my mat leave time, I didn't actually need to miss out on my board meetings or the non-for-profit or pro bono projects that I'm really passionate about, I was able to, you know, tap in for an hour. You know, each day it felt like I'd do at least an hour of Zoom. But it meant that I could 
stay in touch, which I think I'm not sure how I would have coped with being completely isolated. So I think that initiatives like New Normal, ACBI, you know, a lot of bits and pieces that being on chapter council that I'm super passionate about, I think that was kind of an amazing silver lining for me personally. Yeah, absolutely. It's only been recently released that the new normal is is a new initiative that's happening in Australia with a bunch of really amazing, progressive, award-winning architecture firms. Can you give us some more details on this really exciting initiative that's uh, been announced only a few months ago? On the gram. <laughs> um, <laughs> it'll be launched properly at Melbourne Design Week. But, yeah, it's a really ambitious project with you know firms like Claire Cousins, John Waddle, NBW, Open Work, Grimshaw, Hustle, Jenna Katsalides, Ha. Oh, I'll mention them all. Um, I've got them written <laughs> down here. Six degrees field work, addition office Kennedy Nolan, Dreamer, Fool's Cap, Green Shoot Consulting and Greenaway Architects. So it was pretty humbling to be part of such a huge cohort, but we really did get behind this very ambitious but very necessary project that aims to make Melbourne the first self-sufficient city in the world. Just just a small thing, um, <laughs> you know, to bring all these, you know, incredible ESD initiatives that are happening live all across the world but actually pull them all in and activate them all in one city. So Melbourne is currently a consumer and so to move it to being a producer I think is one of the cash cries. So just a cheeky 100 bill transformation but... The thing is that, you know, Finding Infinity or Ross Harding, who's the, the brainchild of this project, I mean, he's a sort of crazy environmental engineer, culture maker, visionary. He does the numbers as well and so it'll pay for itself in 10 years. And, yeah, I guess he brought us all together to couple the tech with some kind of cultural project. So he used to run these off-the-grid festivals that were powered by solar and so he used to sort of say you know music sounds better when it's powered by the sun so for too long we've been talking about this bit of tech and that bit of tech but to actually bring together these architects to create these sort of cultural pieces to actually you know make them sexy and capture the imagination of the public I think is something that we all got excited by that's why we all did the project and Wawa's is waste to energy which is essentially saying that no green waste whether produced by houses or restaurants or you know big manufacturers that none of that should actually go into landfill so we actually turn it into power turn it into something useful and so our like cutesy idea was that you could partner these with public pools so councils would initiate them or developers and then you would use an anaerobic digester that would be fed by all the food waste around town and that it would heat these facilities so we chose a test case which was Fitzroy pool and well, you know, you could make a sexy new entry and there could be the anaerobic digester and a spa and that those two things would be very public and visible and it would be this sort of, you know, Instagram moment that would draw people's attention to the fact that we could be using something that we just throw away. Okay, so your building is going to be, is it attached to the existing Fitzroy pool and it's going to be completely powered by waste produced in Melbourne. Is that the idea? I mean, the idea was that we, all 15 architects, did a kind of render of a sort of test project. But now that that went out, you know, fairly aggressively on the gram and is being picked up by various news outlets now, I think that that project was very speculative. 
but it was meant to be a kind of taster for other councils. So now we're chatting to a lot of other different councils to get one of these projects up. And so the idea is that if all of us get these little test projects up, whether they're the actual one that we proposed or a, a variation of that, that if we can get them all up and running, then we can get this underway. I mean, uh, I think that the, you know, Sally Cap wrote the initial forward for the report. If people want to find out more, it's uh, or normalize.it is the URL. It'll be this big festival at Melbourne Sign League. So I think that that's really the proper launch. And the aim is to bring on sort of private and public funding to make this crazy thing real. But as I said before, you need a certain level of naivety, certain level of just passion and, and excitement for these things. And and if it's right and if it's true and if it's in line with your value system and if it's good for other people and not just yourself, then I think that these things really have a, a way of growing themselves. Yeah, well, it seems like a really interesting order in which it's happening where the good idea and the beneficial proposals for the community are coming first and then when people like that idea and can engage with it and see the benefit of it, they will sign up to it and then make it a reality, which often doesn't happen in architecture. So it sounds like it's right up your alley with the way that you've worked before. Yeah, and I think they're cumulative as well, like all the little actions, you know, like you just, I always say to other emerging architects or, you know, or, or students that, you know, it's actually just about putting one tiny little foot in front of the other and sort of saying, okay, I'm going to decide to action this, decide to action this, decide to action this. And actually, you know, then you look back, you know, say over 10 years and you're just like, oh, wow, like there's so much there because you said yes to that lecture. You said yes to doing a render as part of a pro bono project or you did this or you you served in that way or you did this good thing. So I think I completely contribute our success to just those tiny little actions. You know, that's why our motto is like celebrate the small wins because, you know, who cares about the big ones? You know, who cares about the awards? Because really it's the little wins along the way that actually facilitate those awards because, you know, you've done good work, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And I think that if, if that's your aim, that's the easy bit, right? You can wake up in the morning and say, what awesome thing am I going to do today and not worry about the future because it'll take care of itself if you worry about that one day. That's right. And some of those smaller steps can, can be some of the biggest hurdles. <laughs> so it's really good to, to celebrate them along the way. Yeah. Totally. Um, and, and looking at that list of architects who are, who are part of this new normal initiative, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, there's, there's Dreamer Lab, there's Edition Office and yourself. It's pretty amazing that for an initiative which is going to try and build such large projects, it's great to have so many emerging small practices in this fold. What was the reason behind bringing in younger practices into this group of star Melbourne architects? I think it wanted to be a mixed bag, right? I think that, you know, all big projects should actually have a variety of, you know, a multi-generational aspect to them because it's about sort of experience and then freshness, right? Like, and neither is better than the other. They're just both required. And I think, you know, having that gamut of experience and possibilities around the table is really something that came out of the conference. So Siv and Choi and I co-curated the national conference in 2019 called Collective Agency. And so there we asked over a thousand people, majority of architects obviously, if they were attendees or activists. And we invited them to engage with the politics of space, which I think that they thought they would 
doing before, but I guess we sort of tried to get them to understand how they might be silently complicit in looking around a table and only seeing one type of person there. And so I guess by pushing for these for this diversity in all ways with all projects, I think it is a way to kind of move forward. And I mean, obviously the contention of the, the conference was that eye candy is great and we all love an Insta post, but really that that's the kind of gateway to these larger conversations, which are political. And I think that that's why it's amazing to have so many of those those architects around the table for New Normal because our visual languages are all so different. That's why Melbourne's so good, really. You know, and that's why Melbourne, I think, is so collegiate as well because, you know, everyone has their style, their shtick, and we all celebrate that for each other. And so there's not that competitiveness that I think maybe exists in other places because here it's like, you know, if, if someone comes to me and says, that they want a sort of black box, um, then I like handball them to a more appropriate architect. And I'd hope that, or not even hope, I know that other t- architects do the same to me. You know, if there's a client that's like, I want this crazy colourful thing, you know, they're like, so, um, you know, I called so-and-so and they said we should give you a call. So, you know, I think that that's how it should actually work. Yeah, actually encouraging diversity seems to be the thing that uh, that's made that really worthwhile and that by having emerging practices with established practices there'll be lots of experience in the room with how things have worked really well in the past but then there'll also be some really exciting new ideas that could be put on the table and then talked about to make them happen in the best low risk way possible that can benefit everyone exactly and so and that was you know personified by the conference in a lot of ways you know there was 60% 60% female speakers. It was a very diverse group. You know, every section over the two days, so there was eight sections, every one of them acknowledged country in a meaningful, very authentic way and I think asked people how can they challenge the status quo. The conference itself wasn't a call to action. It was a response to a call that hadn't been answered was something that I said in the day on the day and that we asked everyone to make a pledge. And so for me, the pledge was a project called ACBI. So it's an acknowledgement of country for the built environment. It's a project that I've been working on with two of the speakers of the conference, Cecile Weldon and Sarah Lynn Reese. And they are just, oh my goodness, they are the most amazing humans in the world. And it's just been a really incredible journey to kind of work on and slowly chip away at this project that really was about first articulating this incredible opportunity that I think hasn't been outed yet, this this wrong that hasn't been corrected. And the ambition is to create a new property protocol um, for the whole construction and property sector. So it's, again, just a a small thing. (laughs) But, you know, I think it'll deserve its own podcast in a year or two. But I guess, you know, for us, the conference was about, you know, this environmental and social responsibility and I think that new normal and happy for me really fit those two ambitions and so they are projects that I couldn't be more proud of. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us that uh, little taster of, of ACBI. It sounds like it's going to be really wonderful to hear more about what it's going to entail and, yeah, what it can do for the community. So we look forward to hearing more about that. 
All right, Mon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was really wonderful to talk to you again for the second time. Uh, and it was so good just to hear about all the initiatives that you're involved in, in architecture all over Australia. So thanks again. And yeah, we hope to talk to you in the future. Thank you so much, Dan. It is amazing to do all of these like crazy random projects, but then at the end of the day, it's also really amazing to just sit down and do some yummy details for some resi clients so i'm i'm really hoping that next year you know everyone will be back in the office and uh we'll be able to just you know play with some material samples as well which is um something that we all love no worries fingers crossed (laughs) for anyone who studies in the smaller regions around australia moving to a big city after you graduate can be a necessary evil But some young architects are finding that staying close to home and away from the big smoke brings them the ideal working situation. Curious Practice is an architecture firm based in Newcastle and was established by Warren Hasnoot and Greg Lee. After graduating, working and travelling overseas, the pair decided to start their own practice in their spare sunroom, which has transitioned into a six-person team in their brand new studio space in downtown Newcastle. All right, Warren, well, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's really lovely to have you. How are you going? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Um, did you start off with small jobs like that for friends or did you um, you know, start off with quite a large commission that, that got you off and running? For sure. So when I finished uni, I was working uh, up at the university and also working for one of the lecturers up there in his own practice and so it was very casual and part-time, if you like. And through that process, I was getting approached by friends and acquaintances and, you know, forming relationships with different builders. And so I was starting to certainly build up my own, yeah, work workflow that was coming in. So a lot of that discussion that I had early on with Greg was, yeah, in some ways just giving him the assurance and confidence that there was work there for us to do. And there were certainly smaller projects, so lots of little halts and ads and maybe even projects where they're not, say, typically seeking out the service of an architect, but they're just interested in doing something to upgrade their their house. And I think what we started to bring to the project was that idea of quality and creativity and critical thinking to the projects, which would start to make them more interesting. And that's really where the, the practice started to evolve. So it's been a really organic thing in terms of, really small projects and, and small budgets and, yeah, we're starting to move into you know, bigger budgets and, and more interesting, complex, diverse projects as well. Yeah, so I guess starting off with really quite practical briefs and quite practical um, projects and now now you're getting to move into more or bring in more complexity to, to the projects where you get to pull apart and, and test the brief a little bit more. Is that right? Yeah, I think complexity in terms of size um, most projects we started on were, were residential um, it really was a testing bed for us as well so we were joking for a little while um, around you know how many times can we reinvent the knockdown rebuild and the classic kind of alterations and additions that we were doing was the to get rid of the lean-to at the back and yeah we joke about how many times can we reinvent this this typology as, as doing something interesting but even to this day that for us is a really interesting typology or, or project to take on and now we're moving into we're starting to get some commercial work and 
even playing around with some more multi-res and bigger commercial type projects as well. Yeah, nice. You, you mentioned that you were working on a project at uh, Durham, Durham Road. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that project? Is that an alteration uh, project uh, similar to the uh, oh, knocking down of the lean-to at the back or is this something a little bit different? Yeah, so this project, um, it actually started as one of those projects. It started as really just cutting some holes in, in some walls and reimagining the internal planning just to make better use of the, the existing house. But as we were going through the process, the site was Category 1 in our mind subsidence. So for all the people at home who might not be architects, what is that? <laughs> so Newcastle <laughs> is, has this fantastic history of coal mining and basically the whole city is undermined and there's some really fantastic uh, maps and the mines almost look like streets but they're obviously under the ground and they're at, they're at 45 degrees to the to the classic grid of Newcastle but most of Newcastle is undermined and so the process that we go through with the development application is to submit the plans to mine subsidence and they'll give us feedback. The majority of the times we don't have to do anything but sometimes if the the mines are close to the surface or there has been known subsidence to occur then you know other implications start to to play on the project and in this instance it was actually identified really early and the site was heavily affected there was subsidence in the area it's it's well known around that location uh, and mine subsidence actually had to come in and demolish the house and grout the so fill the, the mine underneath the building before any new works could occur and so that formulated under an insurance project so there is a fee and a, a pot of money there from mines to to contribute to fixing these types of things and making sure issues don't occur but through that process it completely changed what the project was and the project then did become a knockdown and rebuild. And I guess from that perspective as well, then you know, what we were looking at for a budget of doing the small alterations and additions meant that the idea for a, a new home for a five-person family home, yeah, I guess the budget on that project then became really tight and we had to think quite creatively with how we start to manage and, yeah, do something special for them that's not just a project home or something yeah, sure. So it started off being just an, uh, a renovation or a small addition, and now you had to do the whole home. Um, now, what? So, what direction did you take to try to, um, you know, bridge that gap when there, where you know, the cost difference between a brand new build and an alteration is usually, you know, chalk and cheese. How did you? How did you approach that? You know, we knew that we could do something for them. It was going to cost something, and. It was about formulating, I suppose, the design around the best value for money that we could in terms of efficiencies and things that we could take out of the building. But it does, in some ways, really set our ethos for how we try to practice as well, where, you know, we're really looking at, yeah, like certainly the value of an architect in terms of creative thinking, but how we can start to form, I suppose, an alternative option for housing, which isn't people looking at cost-effective housing as project homes or all that type of model. So we really looked at that as, as our competition for this type of project and just areas where we could really strip strip out things that don't actually need to be there or yeah, certainly things that are superfluous within a plan and 
and trying to break down planning in a sense that things can be multifunctional and flexible and you know adaptive to different patterns of living which might not be completely traditional in the in a kind of real estate box ticking type of scenario right and how, how do you think your uh, I guess experience as a young architect was able to help you in in that uh, in that goal. Uh, maybe maybe a level of naivety. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think also just the the rigor and you know the enthusiasm for a project of that type as well. I think that's you know that's certainly something that the young people would bring to a project of that. Typology. So does that mean you're kind of inspired to to dig deeper than just uh, you know going down the regular straight path of uh, what an architectural uh, traditional architectural project might be, uh, or also uh, a traditional spec home project? Yeah, for sure. And it's for us, it's really important. And, you know, I imagine obviously for all uh, architects, but to work really closely with with builders. So you know, we've got builders on early in this project so that we can work through with them and and look at different costing scenarios for different products and identifying you know different details or different products and trying to custom fabricate things which you know might become cheaper than buying off the shelf items but I suppose really trying to involve everyone in the, the whole journey like from the client to the builder from our perspective and taking on parts of the project ourselves as well. Oh, what, which parts were they? Well, just, you know, really identifying parts of the joinery and then almost managing that as a contract within itself and, and us managing that through the working with the joiners on and fabrication on that side of the project. Right, okay. So you actually what, build, built a few of these things yourself or was it more about the joinery uh, fabricator making sure that that, was, that that person was chosen for a very specific task? Yeah, well, quite often with a lot of the projects and through some of the relationships that we've developed on the, the early projects, you know, we've found really fantastic joiners. We've found awesome bricklayers. So different joiners who make timber, timber windows and, and identifying people who have particular skills and so we will we'll speak with them early on in the project and and get pricing and identify ways that we can provide cost savings so it's um all of that's wrapped up in the the final package if you like right okay um in comparison to some of your your colleagues from uni who who went to went on the sort of standard architectural path of maybe working for a large practice, how do you find the role that you guys have created for yourselves differs from the work that uh, people at the same age as, as you guys uh, are doing in in their practice? Yeah, so you know we are in Newcastle, and a lot of people who we went through university with. Once they finish in Newcastle, they move to Sydney to get that experience with a really good practice. For Greg and myself, uh, we've both got families here. We've got houses. So our, our families and our homes are here. And, yeah, for us, I guess that option, it was certainly available, but it wasn't as enticing as um, perhaps what it would be for some of our colleagues who we went through uni with. And, yeah, and so for that, for that reason, it was about us setting up our own practice here. And, you know, I think Newcastle is a really exciting place, as in it's certainly developing. The, the city centre is 
is constantly changing and evolving. Yeah, there's lots of work here and there's lots of scope for, for architecture or, and for architects to, to be involved in that work. So being in Newcastle has offered us other opportunities which for, for a young practice, if we, were, if we were trying to do that in Sydney, we might not have that opportunity. And I think it's been um, certainly beneficial for us not being in, in Sydney but a bit more of a regional town. In terms of risk as, as an emerging practice, what do you think the biggest risk has been that you guys have been able to overcome? Uh, yeah, risk is, <laughs> is a word that we <laughs> yeah. dance, dance with with architecture a lot, isn't it? Um, mm. And how do, how do we avoid risk? But, you know, certainly risk comes with reward. And I think for us it's been really trying to push clients to appreciate and understand mm. why we might do particular things or where we might not do things in, in some regards. So, yeah, sort of I think, I think a lot of actually what we're doing is, is explaining to clients about our thinking and our, our process and trying to keep them informed with, with all of the decisions that we're making along the way, um, just being totally upfront with them with what their budgets are and, and, and what our fees are as well and... That's probably something that we've learned, and, and I think that maybe the experience with doing some smaller projects involving and seeing seeing time as a uh, what what we can get for a particular project with a particular person involved, and that idea of being upfront with the client to say, look, you know, this is what that costs, and this is what our fees are, and and if they can't afford that or if they don't like that, then that's that's their problem. It's not our problem, I suppose, and that that's been a big thing. For us to learn and, and avoid and to avoid that risk, absolutely. Yeah, it it feels like, and um, the more work that you get to do, the more open you get to have, the more open the conversation becomes with with your clients because you can you can say, uh, you know, this project had, we tried this and it didn't quite work, and and that can really be good that you can lean on your projects like like Neville or um, or D- uh, Durham Road. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. We have had a number of phone calls where people will say, look, we've seen this project or we like that. We want to knock down our house and build a new house for 300000 And we're like, yep, sure, you can do that, but um, the house is not going to be the brief that you expect it to be. It's going to be very, very small. And it's about just finding that balance between where they feel comfortable and where we can push them as well. And, yeah, just keeping them informed and, you know, doing our due diligence and, and cross-checking the, the budget if the budget is a really important factor of the project. But, you know, the, the worst thing for us is to set out on the journey of, of designing something for somebody and it coming in over budget and then the project gets shelved at that point. I'd much rather, yeah, have those honest upfront discussions and not invest because every project we take on, we... We invest so much love and time and effort into it that you, you don't want that project to ever fail once you've taken it on. So it's really important to make sure that, that everyone's um, as equally invested in that, that process as you are. Um, it's It's been really lovely to hear about how you've forged your own path in, in architecture with your own practice and your own very unique experience. Uh, for any 
uh, young uh, architects or or graduates out there who might be thinking that they want to they want to try something unique and you know in their own style. Looking back on your own experience now, is there um, something that you would have done a little bit differently that you think might have made things a bit easier? Um, I think getting that experience, you know, really good practice um, or any practice for that matter. So it can be a bigger commercial practice and understanding practice management is such an important part, I think, of what we've done. So, I mean, both Greg and I, we did have experience prior to like, finishing university and I think that experience enabled us to understand the, the practice management side of creating our own practice. But I, I do believe that, that working for another practice before starting out is a really important thing. And, yeah, I mean, for us uh, it has been an evolution in terms of understanding how we, we write fee proposals to... Yeah, just managing clients through processes and, and keeping people informed and happy. But, yeah, that open communication throughout the project with everyone that's involved is, is so important to ensuring the success of a project. But, yeah, at the same time, I think mentors can become become really important. When Before we had the office that we have now, we shared an office with a couple of other architects in Newcastle and... That was really great because through our collective experiences, we could ask questions around, um, you know, how, how you would manage different situations or, or issues which might arise. And, you know, we would do site tours together and check out each other's projects and, and that was really, really good. So I think having that network and that practice management um, around you is, is a really important thing. Definitely. feels like there's been so much reward from some of the risk that you guys took on, um, but it sounds like it's all been uh, a really wonderful experience. But uh, thank you so much, Warren, for being part of the podcast, and we look forward to seeing some more of your projects in the future. It's been really wonderful hearing about your really unique experience. No worries. Thanks very much for having me, Daniel, and it's um, yeah, been really nice to be part of the, the podcast. This has been episode four of season two of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Erin Crowden, Monique Woodward and Warren Hasnoot for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles, Hugh Michaelmore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gordon, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalna Sparks, Tom McKenzie and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. 
This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.